Aaron, thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm English, and so I have to remind myself that was an American welcome. Um, and what I really heard was, this is Matthew, he's some guy. Um, I, I used to know him. Um, Aaron, it was a joy serving with you uh, at Church of the Resurrection. It was a very mutual learning experience. Um, and it's been great for me. This is a luxury for me to be in Chicago, to be connecting again with Aaron and his family, uh, hanging out with them. Uh, as he said, I'm here for a conference, but uh, I wasn't going to miss the opportunity to be here uh, and see you all. So it's great. It's fun to be preaching, but actually it's tremendously encouraging uh, to see you guys and to see a church plant that's just a couple of years further down the line than Christchurch. And to, yeah, it's a joy to look around and see a lot of faces I don't know. Uh, to see how the church has grown, to be hearing stories uh, of how the church is growing in maturity, in numbers, and in serving this city with the gospel. Uh, we're going to, as Aaron said, think about gender this morning. And as we begin, I, I want us to ask God's help. Uh, we uh, are going to be looking at those, two of those readings, the one from Genesis 2 on page 7 of the bulletin and the one from 1 Corinthians 15 on page 9 of the bulletin. I think it'll be helpful to have those readings open in front of you because what I'm interested in this morning is not what I think, uh, but in what God thinks. I hope that's true for you too. Um, don't be misled by the English accent. Uh, there's not a lot that I have to say that's interesting unless it's what God has to say. Um, so keep, keep an eye on those passages. Let's see if what God is really teaching us through his word. Let's, let's pray for his help as we begin. He speaks. And listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Our loving Father, may that be true this morning. Would you please uh, speak to us? Would the Lord Jesus speak to us by his Spirit, through his word? Speak to our minds to inform us. Speak to our hearts uh, to move us, to love you and to know ourselves as loved by you, and then shape us that we might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin with a thought experiment. I want you to imagine uh, that you are going to a party. It's at a friend's. And as you arrive, you walk into the party. You are, I don't know if it's the same over here, um, but in, in England, you, you have different kind of lateness. Uh, you have arriving on time, that's early. Uh, you have uh, arriving a little bit late, uh, that's still early. Uh, you have arriving rather late when the party's in full swing, that's fashionably late. Uh, and then you have arriving disastrously late, which is what I do. Uh, I was meeting with someone for coffee recently, and I was running late, as I always do, I ran to the coffee shop. I apologized for being late, and he said, it's okay. I had my watch set for Matthew Standard Time. You're roughly when I was expecting you. But you arrive at the party. It's in full swing. You walk in, and you see the party is full of women. The entire room is, is full of women. What do you notice? What do you sense? What's the room like? All right, rewind the tape a moment. Now you walk into the party, and you see the party is full of men. There's not a woman there. How does the room feel? Uh, what do you sense? Uh, you have those two scenarios, and maybe you feel like as you walk into the room, you are walking onto sort of home territory. 
Maybe you feel like as you walk into the room, you're walking, maybe not into enemy territory, but into alien territory. How do the rooms feel different? And how do they feel different than they would if it was a mixture of men and women? I think intuitively, instinctively, we know that the rooms would feel different. I spend a lot of my life in coffee shops one way or another. And, and when I should be working, what I'm doing is watching people. And I call it work. Because um, I'm supposed to be interested in people, because I'm a pastor. And, and it's fascinating to watch the groups of people in a coffee shop and to see what does it look like when it's usually two or three guys walk into a coffee shop together and, and sit and talk. Or when it's usually like a dozen women walk in together uh, and sit and talk. And where, in the city where I live, it's often people with kids. And it's fascinating to watch the difference where the guys will sit there and have a very reserved British conversation. Um, and if there are kids there, then the kids get ignored. And they're doing their thing. And then occasionally, uh, this kid's tugging on his or her dad's elbow. And he has to look down and talk to the kid. And he ducks out of the conversation for a while. And then he comes back up into it. You see the group of women. And they're all there, and they're talking louder and louder over the top of each other. The conversation is getting more and more animated, and mom is kind of talking to the kids and holding the conversation at the same time. I, I don't know how that works, but it, it, it does. That's how it happens. Men and women are different, and we know it. If you have eyes in your head, you know it. And sometimes we think, well, men and women are not really that different because we think of ourselves individually and we think of maybe cultural stereotypes of what a real man really is or what a real woman really is. And I don't know where you come from in this country, but depending on where you come from, those stereotypes will be different and they'll be stronger or weaker. And there's a lot of cultural pressure to reduce the differences between men and women and say, really, we're just the same. And you might... Think of a man you know or a woman you know, a man who fulfills more of the feminine stereotypes. He's more nurturing, he's more tender, he's more emotional, or, or he reads poetry. Uh, you might uh, think of a woman you know who is more kind of driven and type A and career-oriented, and she's an engineer, and, and you think, well, men and women, they're just the same. And what I'm doing in that opening illustration is just to try and say, when we, when we think of not individual men and women, where there's a huge overlap, but when we think in more general categories, we have a sense that although men and women have a lot in common, there are also differences. We're going to think about that and explore it as part of this series that you're in. Uh, the title that Aaron gave me is an engendered city, and, and really that just means a male and female city. The great hope of Christianity, the great hope of the resurrection of the dead, of eternal life with God forever is, is the hope of community with God and with one another. But it's a community that will be engendered, that will be marked by maleness and femaleness, and that will therefore be rich and beautiful. And, and I'm hoping to convince you of that this morning, but I'm aware that as I talk about this, for some of us, these are going to be very personal issues. And maybe personally painful issues for a whole host of different reasons. Maybe you don't feel comfortable in yourself, in your maleness, your masculinity, or your femaleness, your femininity. Maybe you feel uncertain about it. Maybe for you, 
Even the idea that men and women are different from each other is a, is a kind of difficult thought. You're not comfortable with it. There's a lot of cultural pressure on us that has generated, I think, a lot of anxiety in talking and thinking about these things. And even to get up in front of a group of people I don't know and say, hey, men and women are different and we all know it, I think I'm supposed to feel anxious about saying that. And there are some people who would say, you're not allowed to point out these obvious differences, and some of the things I'm going to say are going to be controversial things. And there's pressure on us to not say them, not think them, and that creates anxiety. And I just want to raise that and point it out and say anxiety is really bad for clear thinking. It's hard to think clearly when you think... Am I allowed to think this? Where, where, is this? where is this train of thought heading? Is that a good thing? Is that a permissible thing? If I said this in public, in my college, in my place of work, with my roommates, if they knew either that I think this or that this crazy guy who was speaking to me on Sunday and I was listening to it and I was in an environment where this stuff was said, if they knew that, what would they think about me? And I just want to say anxiety is bad for clear thinking, so I want to encourage a sort of relaxed confidence in thinking about these issues. I'm not necessarily expecting that everyone is going to agree with everything I say. I'm not even expecting that everyone's going to approve of what I say. And I want you to know I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. That's fine. Disagree with me? That's okay. I hope we could have a friendly conversation about it. Disapprove of me? That's okay too, because I have a plane ticket out of here in a couple of days' time. <laughs> this is easy. Every time I get near the edge of saying something that I'm not sure whether I really should say that. I just have to remember the plane ticket and press on. Anxiety is bad for clear thinking. Can I say anxiety is bad for love as well? It's very hard to love when you feel anxious. It's the great irony that actually the cultural anxiety we experience thinking about masculinity, femininity, gender, uh, is spawned out of a good desire to be compassionate, to tolerate, to love, to affirm. But actually, because it generates anxiety in thinking about these things, it, it actually prevents that. Because anxiety, although it's related to other people and how they think about me, anxiety is fundamentally self-oriented. I'm conscious of myself. I'm thinking about how I'm coming across right now. I'm thinking about, am I allowed to say this or not? And that paralyzes love. So I want to encourage us this morning to relax, to give ourselves permission to think about these things. Maybe some of the things I will say will trigger emotions in you, fears, anxieties. I want you to be aware of those things. Please pay attention to them, note them, but don't be governed by them for the next 20 minutes or so. Um, sorry, two hours or so. Is that what you said? Yeah. Try and be aware of that. And just rather than thinking, where does this lead? Am I allowed to think this? Can I ask you to ask yourself the question, is this true? All right, that's the question to ask this morning. Is this true? Lastly, I just want to say I'm aware. You may be here this morning, and uh, I don't know who I'm speaking to. It's, it's much easier to have this kind of thing in my home congregation where I know people pretty well. There may be someone here who is uh, transgender uh, or suffers from gender dysphoria. There may be... Uh, someone here, maybe more than one person here who has an intersex condition, 
And what I'm going to say today is going to be, it's going to land more, it's going to be more difficult for you. It's going to land in a more painful and personal way for you. Um, I want to just acknowledge that. As Aaron said, I'm here to speak at a conference. I'm going to be speaking on the issue of transgender and gender dysphoria. Uh, I've been doing some research and writing on intersex conditions as well. So I have thought about these things. I, I just, if we're not going to be here for two hours, then I can't talk about them. Um, I'd love to chat afterwards. I'll be honest with you that if, if you're here and that's your experience, I'll be much more interested in hearing about your experience than trying to download any of my thoughts. Uh, I would encourage you that there are, there are people in this church community who would love to hear your story, to hear what it's like, and to walk with you through your experience of life. But I just can't address those things this morning. So we're going to think about male and femaleness, about life now as male and female, about life in the world to come, in the city that's coming, when God renews everything and restores this city to perfection. What does it mean to be male and female? Three points. God made us male and female. God will raise us male and female. And God made us to be family. Okay, God made us male and female. Look at Genesis chapter 2 for a moment. Uh, This describes... Uh, the creation of humanity and God's plan for humans. And when Jesus was confronted by his contemporaries who wanted to know about marriage, the place he went was back to these two chapters, Genesis 1 Genesis 2, to give us a vision for humanity. So that's why, as Christians, we go back to these chapters because that's where Jesus would take us. And two things. Uh, first is in chapter 1 of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 27, when we're told this, God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're told right at the beginning, what are humans like? Well, humans come in two different bodily forms, male and female. And they're different from one another. And at the same time, completely equal with one another, with equal worth, equal dignity, equal value, made in the image of God, with actually far more in common with each other that is different. We're all humans. We're all in God's image. And yet, nevertheless, two forms, male and female. And in Genesis 2, where it kind of zooms in on that creation of male and female, we see ways in which men and women are different from each other, particularly in the way we're described in the way God creates us. I just want to, there are actually a ton of things I could say from Genesis 2 about how we're described as different. I just want to point out something really obvious. And it's the way in which we're created that marks us out as different from one another in God's plan. You look at uh, verse 7, we'll see that the man is created first before there's a woman in the way the Bible pictures it. And we're told this, verse 7, the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. The way the man is described as being created by God is distinctive. The the word used there, formed, is the word used of a potter shaping uh, clay. It's God as an artisan, as a craftsman, lovingly, carefully shaping uh, this man's body. He forms him. And look at where he forms him from. He forms him from the dust of the ground. And Adam's name relates to where he comes from. His name is Adam, and the Hebrew word for ground is Adamar. So he is kind of dirtbag from the dirt. That's what it means to be a man. It means you're a dirtbag. Dirtbag from the dirt. And he's created as lifeless 
And then there's a second stage to his creation when God breathes the breath of life into his nostrils and he comes to life. Now look at the way the woman is created uh, in uh, verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made or literally built into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the word that's used to describe the, the creating act is a different word. It's no longer formed like a potter. It's built like an architect. And it's used of temples, actually, uh, of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 6 to 8. And the way Eve is created and described is, is described like a temple. This is something sacred happening. If the guy is a dirtbag, the woman, there's something wonderful and mystical and beautiful happening as she's created. Notice she's taken not from the ground, but from him. So she's taken from something that's already living. And so the creation is in one stage, not two stages. She's already made alive. And God brings her to the man, and the man names her in verse 23. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Just as he is Adam from the Adamar, she is Isha from the Ish, her name reflects where she comes from. So men and women are different. And we know that. It's not just an arbitrary thing the Bible says. We know that from our own experience. What happens when a baby is born? What does the midwife do? First thing that happens, lifts up the baby and goes, it's a girl, or it's a boy. I remember my first daughter was born by cesarean section, and the surgeon pulled pulled her out, held her up to me and went, what is it? And I froze. And I went, oh no, that's an easy question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's obvious. In, in almost all cases, there are occasionally ambiguities, but almost always it's very clear. And as the child grows, and particularly as the child grows into puberty, those biological differences between men and women become clearer and clearer. Secondary sexual characteristics develop. A man's broader shoulders, a woman's broader hips, a beard, the pitch of their voices. And so men and women are distinctively different in their bodily forms. And it's not just biological, it's personal. It's not just that I'm a person and I happen to have, by accident, a male body. It's that I am male personally male. Uh, we know that because of our faces. Think about your face for a minute. The face is where you meet someone. It's where you meet the person. When you look into someone's eyes, you're not just looking at a bit of their body. You know, if you look at someone's elbow, you know, if I, excuse me, sorry, Micah. <laughs> is it, I'm, just, I'm just looking at Micah's elbow right now, and it could be anybody's elbow. But if I'm looking into Micah's eyes and into his face. I'm looking at Micah the person, and I'm, I'm searching for the person, and I'm encountering him as a person. And because the face is part of the body, it teaches us that our bodies are personal, and it's where a person resides. But think about faces. Look around the room. The interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, faces are not biologically related to reproduction or anything like that, but it, it's obvious. You can glance around the room, and you know immediately you're looking at a male face or a female face, a male person or a female person. It tells us that our personhood, our embodied personhood, 
is masculine or feminine. Whether or not you feel comfortable with that, I don't know. But let's take another step. God made us male and female, and God is committed to his plans, and so God will raise us as male and female. So God made us male and female. If we can get rid of our anxiety, it's just blindingly obvious. You know, <laughs> Little children know it very quickly. It's, it's very clear if you just stop and think about it and allow yourself to name that fact. But God will raise us male and female, because he's committed to it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is talking about the resurrection of the body. And he says, look, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, because 2,000 years ago, God really physically, bodily raised Jesus from the dead and defeated death forever, because the tomb was empty and because Jesus once again took up the body that he was born with, we too will be raised. He wasn't raised on his own. His resurrection is organically connected to us so that if we believe in Jesus, we too one day will be raised to everlasting life. And he's, he's dealing with a group of uh, Greek Christians who have Greek ideas of the body, that the body's a bad thing, that what matters is the soul. And he's dealing with their skepticism about the value of the body and the, the goodness of the resurrection And one question he evidently has to deal with is in verse 35. Someone will ask, sort of skeptically, oh yeah, this sounds like science fiction, Paul. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? We know what happens to bodies. They die, they rot. So what kind of body are they going to have? And Paul is answering that question and saying, look, there's an organic connection between the body you have now and the body you will have then. There's continuity and transformation. And so in verse 37, he uses the analogy of a seed being sown in the ground. A seed is sown in the ground, a plant comes forth, and there's a sort of genetic continuity. You know, you don't sow um, an apple seed and expect to harvest bananas. You don't sow grain and expect to get olives. There's continuity, but there's difference. The plant is different. The tree is different from the seed continuity and transformation, what will that be like, though? Well, verse 38, what kind of body God will decide? Not us, God. Verse 38, God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. God will decide what kind of body you're raised with. Here's the thing, actually, that Paul is saying. God has already decided God decided from the moment he created you and gave you the body that you have. Look at the tenses of the verbs that Paul uses. But God gives it, present tense. This is what will happen when you're raised. God gives it a body. Not as he chooses or as he will choose, but as he has chosen, past tense. And that past tense is significant. God gives it a body as he already chose. As he chose, as he willed as he purposed in creation. In these uh, few verses, Paul is rooting his argument in creation and in the kind of categories of creation in Genesis 1, verses 39 to 41. Fish, birds, animals, humans, stars, sun, moon, they're all from categories from the creation account in Genesis 1. 
this continuity. God has decided in creation what body you will have. If you have a female body now, or if you had a female body rather when you were born, you will have a female body then. If you had a male body when you were born, you will have a male body then. You don't get to decide. God has chosen. And it's not just a generic female body or male body. It's your female body or male body. Look at verse... uh, Oh, you can't look at verse 53 because it's not on there. So uh, let me read to you verse 53. Paul talks about the weakness, the frailty of our bodies. I look around and some of you, I, I, I mean, a lot of you actually probably don't believe that yet, that your body is weak and frail and dying. Uh, I'm 41 and so I know it. Uh, I'm jet lagged and so I really know it. Um, and I'm sort of leaving in a few days time and then I'm spending five days in the UK. Then I'm coming back for another five days to the States. Then I'm going back to the UK, by which stage I'll really know it, uh, that this is a clapped out, dying, frail, weak body that I have. And yet there'll be a transformation. There'll be a wonderful transformation when God raises you. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed for this perishable body. The body you have right now, this perishable body, must put on the imperishable This mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable puts on the imperishable, when this mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, as it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, I would love to just dwell on that thought, that death is swallowed up in victory, but I want to focus on that word. Did you hear it four times in those two verses? This, this body will put on. There'll be a wonderful transformation where you won't be given a new and completely different kind of body. You will be given this body that you have now, completely transformed, not in its form and its shape, but in that it will no longer be weak, frail, sick, dying. It will be immortal, powerful, glorious, beautiful, And Paul uses the language of putting on, like putting on a new set of clothes. Here's the picture. Uh, The queen, uh, who is a very important person um, and dresses like a very important person a lot of the time, dresses to be seen, just like Aaron, dresses to be seen. She she doesn't have a unibrow, and I, I better not go there or I could get imprisoned for these kind of statements, but... She goes on vacation each year to a castle in Scotland called Balmoral. When she's on vacation at Balmoral, she wants to blend in. She doesn't want to be noticeable as the queen. She wants to be able uh, to go and do whatever it is queens do when they're on holiday. And so she wears a sort of tweed skirt and a green sweater, and she puts a scarf over her head very often just to kind of be anonymous. There's a story about one time she went into a grocery store, um, and she's doing her groceries or whatever, and she goes to the checkout, and the woman looks at her and goes, do you know, you look just like the queen. (laughs) To which apparently the queen is alleged to have responded, oh, how very reassuring. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few weeks later, the end of the summer, 
The Queen returns to London, and one of the first things she does is the state opening of Parliament each year, uh, where she enters and she sits on her throne in the House of Lords with the ermine uh, and silk uh, robes and the crown on her head and the scepter in her hands. And there's a reason why she's called Your Majesty. These clothes are designed to make her look majestic and glorious and magnificent. The same person who puts on a completely different outfit, a completely different set of clothes, and is transformed from very ordinary old lady to Her Majesty, uh, the Queen of England and the United States. I told you, I just have to remember the passport. If I'm going to offend you, that's how I want to offend you, you know. (laughs) When I said, your body, the body that you have right now, is the body that will be given to you, I wonder how you feel about that. I wonder how you feel about your body. I've never talked about this in public before, but I don't know you, so I can. And it's America, so I should share. (laughs) Gary Springer, just out there. I, I don't like my body. I've never liked my body. Uh, I was a little skinny, weedy kid. Uh, you, you can look at me and see not a lot has changed. I'm a bit taller. Uh, I have a skinny, weedy body. Um, it's not something I'm comfortable with. Uh, I have uh, arms like rubber bands with a knot tied in the middle for an elbow. Um, and because I'm British and I feel uncomfortable about it, I make self-deprecating jokes. That's how I deal with it. Uh, I, I like being by the sea. I like beaches. I don't like being on the beach because on the beach you're not supposed to wear very many clothes and people get to see what your body looks like. So I'm the guy on the beach wearing a three-piece suit. I don't like swimming or going to the swimming pool for the same reason. Um, It's not a comfortable thought. So I wonder how you feel about your body. Let me say, on that day, When you receive your body transformed, powerful, majestic, beautiful, not one of us will feel sad. Not one of us will feel regret. It will be a wonderful thing. You will inhabit your body, and maybe for the first time in your life, you will be fully at rest, fully comfortable with yourself. It will be a wonderful thing. I wonder how you feel about your gender. I'm not necessarily talking about the experience of gender dysphoria here, but maybe you're a man who you're just not very sure whether you're really a very masculine kind of guy. You don't feel comfortable with that. Maybe you're a woman, and you're not sure how feminine you really are. There's a recent survey in the UK that asked, one of the questions it asked, do you have a positive perception of masculinity? Uh, and young, young men and young women, the 18 to 24 age group, 39% of young men had a positive perception of masculinity, 42% of young women. That's a generation uh, of people. And I, my estimate is probably a couple of generations at least of 
uh, people in Britain who just don't have a positive view of what masculinity is. They think of, I think they think of cultural stereotypes. Uh, they think of the kind of hyper-aggressive, narcissistic, baby man Donald Trump kind of masculinity. And it's just not a nice thought. And so you ask tw- uh, si- over 65s, men over 65, do you, how masculine do you feel? And 56% of over 65 said, I feel completely masculine. 74% of over 65 said, I feel mostly masculine. So there's a generation of men who are pretty comfortable on the whole in their masculinity. 18 to 24-year-old men, 2% feel completely masculine. 24% feel mostly masculine. Among women, the gap is smaller... And the percentages of I feel basically feminine are a bit higher, but it's it's essentially the same. We've got a generation, and I think it's probably true over here too, of men and women who we just don't, we're uncertain. What does it mean to be male and female? Am I comfortable with that? Am I comfortable owning the fact that I really am a man? Do I know how to inhabit my masculinity? Do I know, if I'm a woman, how to inhabit my femininity. Cultural anxieties, cultural pressures, either to say, here are some negative stereotypes, here are ways that women have been badly treated, oppressed, marginalized, victimized. Here are ways uh, that male stereotypes have been unhealthy. I mean, it's very difficult to actually inhabit our gender comfortably. And maybe you don't match the stereotypes. Maybe you're not an athletic guy. Maybe you're not a type A. Maybe you're not strong. You don't feel yourself strong. You feel weak. And you like reading poetry. Maybe you are a woman who is interested in the sciences and engineering or who is career-oriented. You don't necessarily feel physically particularly feminine. In my family, it's odd because I feel... I do feel... I don't like my body. I do feel quite masculine... Um, And one of the things we're trying to do is train our kids. You are, you really are a boy, you really are a girl, but let's not get hung up about all of the stereotypes of what that might mean. So in my family, I'm the art student. Uh, I was a musician. I am the one who reads poetry. Uh, My wife was a, a scientist, a research scientist. My daughter is very keen right now to become a research scientist like her mom, and that's a great thing. So I'm not arguing for stereotypical kind of cultural expressions. I wear pink. Not, not all pink at once, but pink shirts <laughs> particularly. Um, that kind of thing. I have a friend who's one of the more masculine men that I know who likes knitting. That doesn't make him less masculine. That's stupid. And yet, we are different from each other. Think back to that opening illustration. Think back to watching groups of men and women interacting. We're just different, and we know it. Well, what does that mean? We're different. We're different in God's plan. We're different in where God is taking us so that we will be part of a community that's engendered, where we will see and celebrate these embodied differences. What does it mean now? What does it mean to be male and female? Well, it means God made us to be family. That's my third point. I'll try and be brief. Uh, Let's go back to Genesis 2 really quickly. What does it mean to be male? What does it mean 
to be female. Put aside the stereotypes. What's the root core meaning? We could get this in two ways. You see, the Bible's not an arbitrary book. It's not just saying stuff. It's saying stuff that accords with reality. So I could get this by just arguing from the nature of our bodies. I could get it from arguing from the Bible. I'm going to go from the Bible for now. But one of the things I say to our congregation is relax. There's such a thing as reality, and it's really real. And I just want you to have confidence in that. What is the reality? Well, it's this. Why did God make us male and female? Why not just make us androgynous? He made us male and female for a couple of very specific reasons, I think. Adam is alone. And in verse 18, it's not good for him to be alone, says God. Why isn't it good for him to be alone? Not so much that he's lonely, but that he's got a task. Actually, there's two reasons. He needs communion. He needs relationship. He needs deep and intimate relationship. And so the woman is taken from him and then brought back to him, and they're kind of separated as she's torn from his side, turned into a human, brought back with him. And then what happens? Verse 23, he sings this happy little song, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's Bible language. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh is Bible language for family. If you are my bone and my flesh in the Old Testament, it means you're my family. You're part of my kinship group. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there's this division that's oriented towards an intimate reunion. So it's about relationship, but it's also about fruitfulness. In Genesis 1, God makes us to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and subdue it, to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He creates the woman to be a helper to man in this task. The picture of the Bible is we start with two human beings, and what God wants is a community, a family of billions of human beings, filling the earth, caring for it, loving God, living in community, loving one another, being stewards of the creation. God wants a community. And St. Augustine, the great Christian theologian at the end of the 4th, beginning of the 5th centuries, in his great masterwork, The City of God, he has this bit where he talks about, why did God do that? Why did God make us male and female with just two people in the beginning? Why didn't he make us like the angels, who there's just billions of them already? They don't marry, they don't reproduce, they don't have gender. Why didn't God do that for us if that's what he wants? And Augustine says the reason is he wants us to be family. He wants not just us to be like each other, he wants us to be kin flesh and blood together. You know, we treat our families differently, don't we? We feel about our families differently. If your family is dysfunctional, those relationships are more painful, aren't they? Harder, because they're family, and they should be different. Uh, If your family's a, a good, healthy family, you feel a loyalty to your family, don't you? I can say things about my family. I can make criticisms of my family that you are not allowed to make because they're my family. Yeah? Why did God make us male and female in the beginning? 
so that we have to procreate and raise children and grow through the generations. It's so that we are all family. This is the reason, by the way, uh, that there is no room at all for Christians to be racists. Because we're family. Because whatever your skin color, wherever you originally come from, whatever your ethnicity, we are family. Equal with one another in dignity, but more than that, bound together in bonds of love and community. But you see what that means. Why male and female? So that Adam and Eve can be mother and father, father and mother. That's actually the meaning of masculinity and femininity at root. To be masculine is to be paternal, to be a father. To be feminine is to be maternal, to be a mother. Now, I don't mean by that (laughs) that you've got to have kids. Uh, And I'm not, again, feeding into cultural stereotypes of what a woman's place is. Because there's, you know, being maternal, being paternal, is far more than just having children, isn't it? Think about it. Think about the guy who just throughout his 20s and 30s has a series of partnerships and in those partnerships has a series of kids and just moves on from one, one partner to another partner to another partner and has no interest in his children at all. Is that man a father? Yes. And no. And actually, biologically, yes, he's a father, but in the deepest, most important ways, he's not a father at all. Think about the, the woman who is infertile, who longs to have children but is unable to, and yet who opens up her home to foster children, and over the course of her 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, just welcomes child after child into her home and nurtures them and pours herself into them before they move on for adoption. Is that woman a mother? Biologically, no. But is she a mother? Yes. Far more than the woman who has a child and pays that child no attention until it leaves home. That's what it means. To be a father means to be strong, to love, to provide security. To be a mother means to be tender, and gentle, and provide nurture and rest. You know, I think, and I can't show this to you now, but I think the fundamental meaning of father is security. The fundamental meaning of mother is rest. That's what a dad does for his kids, or should do for his kids, and for his wife. That's what a mom should do for her husband and for her children. And that's a wonderful thing. So, We're created to be family, and we're created to relate to each other in this kind of way. If you are a man here this morning, you are created. Whether you have children right now, whether you ever have children, whether you have the slightest interest in having children, you are created to relate to others in that paternal kind of way. If you're a woman, you're created to relate to people in a maternal kind of way. Or if you prefer, think of sibling relationships. Brothers relate to brothers differently than brothers relate to sisters. And sisters relate to sisters. I never realized this until we had a family at church that has five brothers. And I was just like, wow, that's a different dynamic than I remember from my family. And it's a beautiful thing. 
I'm going to close, but this is God's call on your life. And here's why it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because it creates a community that is rich and varied and mysterious and complex and lovely. I love craft beer. And Father Aaron and I, you know, I just arrived, and the first thing I wanted to do was go and have a beer with Father Aaron. And so we did, and we sat in the bar. And I love craft beer because of the complexity and the richness of the flavors. And there is mystery in that. And I'm the kind of annoying person where I was sitting at the bar going, what, what, is, that, what is that flavor? You know, not the, not the really hoppy thing that hits you first, but there's something, that second flavor you get, what is it? It's kind of oaky and smoky. And I, what, what is that flavor? I'm British, I'm pretentious, it's how it works. <laughs> but there's something about, you know, you drink PBR and it doesn't taste of anything. But you drink a really great... IPA, uh, or a really great oatmeal stout, and you've got the blend of the flavors, the blend of the different things going on together is far richer than the sum of its parts. Think about the difference between drinking really good French wine and Welch's grape juice. You know, I don't know what's in the chalice, but I'm hoping... (laughs) I'm hoping... uh, I'm hoping that you drink Burgundy for the Lord's Supper. We have good ports at our church, not Welch's grape juice. Because Welch's grape juice is the kind of bland, it's one flavor, and it's sweet and sickly, and I'd rather drink Coke. (laughs) But a good wine has just these complex flavors blending together. I want to live in a world of Pinot Noir, not a world of Welch's grape juice. And that's what God promises us. It'll only happen as we're able to relax, embrace who God has made us to be, and lean into that. Relate to one another in this variegated way. You know, men, the other men in this church need you to be brothers and fathers. Women, the other women in this church need you to be mothers and sisters and daughters. And the men need you to be that too, and the women need you to be that too. My dad died when I was in my mid-twenties. And I've got a great family. I've got a great wife, lovely kids. I've got a series of wonderful uh, male friendships. I've had mentors who have been sort of five to ten years older than me who have poured into my life. I've had peers and older brothers. And I hadn't realized what I was missing until probably four years ago, Bishop Steve Breedlove became my bishop. And here for the first time in 15 years was a man who was old enough to fulfill that kind of paternal role in my life. And there was a weight and a strength and a security about his presence that I just went, oh, that is what has been missing from my life. It was a wonderful thing. I think of a single woman I know who longs to have children but doesn't have children. So what she does instead is she has sleepovers uh, with the girls in church. And they adore her as she plays the role of older sister and mother in their lives. I think of a couple I know, an older couple who never had children and bitterly regret never having children. 
because they see that they should have this paternal, maternal role. I said, don't you realize the way you mentor younger couples, the way you invite single men and women into your home for rest and refreshment over a weekend, you are mother and father in that church. I think of a widow who knows there's a man in her congregation who is single in his 50s and never gets any physical contact with anyone ever. And so every week, she goes up to him after worship and gives him a big hug. It's a profoundly maternal thing to do. Your city needs, craves, thirsts for a community like that. Will you be those people together? Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the beauty of your plan, the beauty of maleness and femaleness together in harmony, creating a rich blend, creating rich and sweet and delicious flavors and aromas that fill people's lives. Thank you for this church community, for the men and women in it. I pray for self-acceptance, for acceptance of your plan and your purpose for each person in this church as male or female. And I pray for everyone here to lean into this vision, your vision of what it means to be human as male and female, as mother and father and brother and sister, so that this is a richly textured, loving community that breathes life and hope into this city, into the lives of everyone here. May it be an enriching family. For Jesus' sake, amen.